Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief for the 9th of October edition. As usual, I'm joined by Dan Wirth, International Editor, and Gronya Hallahan, Recruitment Editor. We're going to take a look at some of the features from this issue in turn and hopefully have a jolly good discussion about it. First feature we're going to look at is this week's cover feature by Ian Taylor. This is looking at comfort feedback and that's a that's a phrase I guess that we don't really use but what it means is that com- uh, feedback like well done you tried really hard it's okay if you didn't get the top mark or it's okay if you didn't quite match your usual standard or all oh, really bad luck it was a bad test and Ian sort of suggests that that sort of feedback isn't massively helpful one it limits the ambition of the student you're saying to that student that it's okay if you got that lower mark because that's what I think you're capable of and secondly he thinks that if you're just going to tell somebody that it's okay, don't worry about it and not offer them any tips to push their performance forwards or as he calls it, make their best better. You're not actually helping that child that much. Now, I guess this is quite a controversial one because we don't want to be automatons and the humanity in teaching is very important. So I, I guess I'll throw it to you two is, you know, what, what's your view? What's your initial reaction, I guess, to comfort feedback? Maybe you first, Gronia, since you're a teacher. I mean, what, what does it instantly make you feel? Oh, I felt so guilty reading that. So I thought of all the times I've been softly like, oh, it's okay. You gave it a really good try. I could see you. It was so close. You were so close, but don't worry about it. And that kind of dismissive, but you think you think you're being nice, but it's um it's something that's really it's really difficult to give honest feedback. It's really difficult to make someone's feelings hurt when you're especially when you're face to face. It's so much easier on paper. The joy of like handwritten marking, then you can tell them how how badly they've done. And you can even sort of, you know, you can be a bit more brutal with them because then you can be soft in person. It's so difficult to be harsh in person. And that's... That very quickly, can I just say that it's, it's quicker than usual we've got to the moment where Gornia outs herself as hating children. <laughs> Every episode it just becomes earlier in the, in the <laughs> podcast where she outs herself like, you know, I really want to tell these kids what I think of them. And you know, it's, it's not nice. <laughs> you have to, as a teacher, give feedback. That's not a nasty thing. That's something that people do all the time, John. That's part of the job. Sorry, and. Yeah. Being constructive in your feedback is fine, but saying something that you know might comfort that child to sort of soften it a little bit is really difficult, especially when you first met a child. So I found that feature really interesting, really thought-provoking, thought-provoking. but um, I think where you might become a bit stuck in it is actually at this point of the, in the year in particular, if people are listening now, you know, at the time this is going out, you've just met your classes, you're just getting to know your students, that's the toughest time to give candid feedback. What do you think you'd have fared under that, Dan? As if you'd if you'd have, you know, the example in the feature is is Safira, who's studied really hard for her uh, exam in science, and she gets the test back, and she's done slightly less than than she would would have hoped to achieve normally, mm-hmm. and she gets this comfort feedback that's aimed to make her feel better. Whereas Ian said, what should have happened is you know questioning of some of the revision techniques, saying you know okay how do we get this to the next level? How would you have dealt with those two different types of feedback, do you think? Well, it's a complex one, isn't it? Because I suppose that's a self-created example where how do we know that this imaginary teacher doesn't, didn't then go and do that afterwards. But I, the point is, is obviously valid that um, you have to balance positive comfort feedback with kind of a slightly sort of, look, here's how you could have done better. I think though, 
you do need that comfort feedback. And again, the, the phrase already would probably get some people's backs up uh, because it sounds a bit twee or it sounds a bit, you know, I don't use the word snowflake, but that kind of idea, doesn't it? Like, oh, you need comfort feedback. Even if you do, you know, really badly, you need to be told how great you are. And it's not that, is it? It's about saying, you know, sometimes you need that sense of, yeah, that was a hard test or, yeah, you didn't, you know, <clears throat> don't worry. I, I know you've had a difficult week or, you know, because you, you might know something about the student's life or you might know they've just been on a, well, I'm not saying on a trip, that's not a good example right now, but, you know, something else in their life that means they well because they weren't able to for whatever reason. And if you just acknowledge that, it might then make them feel like, oh, they do know that I would do better usually, or that this was a below par score and actually, but it doesn't, I don't need to be called, called out for it this time because it wasn't because I didn't try. It just didn't, it just didn't work that time. We all have days like that, don't we? But I do think also, yeah, the, the point though is, is well made in the piece. It's very sort of well written, quite a very analytical piece using data to back up what it's saying. It's not just a sort of a, a polemic against being nice to children. It's saying, you know, there are times when that feedback may be well meant, but it doesn't deliver. And if that was me, I think I either the teacher or the pupil, I, I think you'd have to judge the situation on its merits. And I think most teachers probably are able to do that. But I think it's a good article for saying, maybe don't do it as often as you perhaps maybe do, because it might not actually be the right thing to do every time. Do you think at the moment as well, um, there's so much talk of recovery curriculum, you know, children would have been traumatized by the covid experience and we need to be as nice to them as possible and we run quite a lot of stuff saying you know we have to be careful about assuming lockdown was a traumatic experience for children you know you can't deal in those blunt terms and perhaps ian's contribution here is to say yeah, we need to be careful that that doesn't leak over into our pedagogy in, in a sense that we're excusing i mean that's about that's a very loaded word so maybe i should stay away from the word excusing but um, maybe we're saying things that aren't as helpful as we think they are. Yeah, I, I think that certainly certainly could be the case. Like you say, and if a student maybe had a nice lockdown, I and mean, you don't know, do you? I mean, this is a, the whole range of experiences exist in your classroom. How would you know what they did? And if a student comes in and then doesn't feel they're being pushed or isn't being called out for a less good mark, maybe that means they slide a bit and maybe they need the push in the sense of, yeah, you didn't do very well there, actually. You know, we need to talk about how you're going to improve that score the next time around maybe just the thing they need. And like, it's very difficult. You can imagine like you've got to sort of think about that and make sure it lands. So yeah, you're right. Ian's piece is not, you know, it's, it's, it's a very sort of, it's a well-constructed argument around that issue, as you, as you just said. And Gordon, I mean, how much you hinted at it before, but how much of this is going to depend on pupil teacher relationships in the sense that, you know, there's certain kids you can have a bit of banter with certain kids that don't really understand banter, certain kids that, you know, you know, need a bit of an arm around them, figuratively speaking, at the moment, especially, and and some kids who actually just need a bit of challenge. I mean, sh is it more nuanced is what I'm getting at than perhaps a blanket, no comfort feedback rule? It's so nuanced. And it's not just knowing which kids will be able to take a joke and be able to have a bit of a laugh about it. It's also just knowing which kids trust you enough to listen to what you're saying and to listen to the feedback that you've got. And it also requires you to have a very good knowledge of that child. Like Dan said, like if you understand what's going on with them and what's going on in their lives, then your feedback will obviously be better. So it's something that I think takes practice. It takes practice to give people honest feedback. And I think it's something that if we're all honest, the three of us, how good are we at giving feedback to people in, like in our professional lives? Like we get asked for feedback all the time. I feel you know, like this is coming around to my poor management again. 
<laughs> I think these two themes of the that podcast, comes up quicker each week. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's this dig straight to straight to the heart every week. You know, you out yourself as a as a person who hates kids, and then then you out yourself that you hate my management. I just I just don't know where to go from there. Well, before I was interrupted, as I was saying, John, you're very good at giving feedback, <laughs> and you're very experienced at having to give when people are asking for your feedback and you're giving your honest opinion. It's still difficult. Like you still know how hard it is to tell somebody who really hopes that they've done well, actually what they've done doesn't quite meet the mark here, and they're like you've missed a little bit. Like it's it's not nice for either person, whoever's listening to it and whoever's giving it, and it's something that just takes practice and just like swallowing it and just thinking yep they're gonna not gonna like hearing it but it's going to be good for them to hear it so I'm going to say it it's interesting earlier Gronya you said about how it can be easier to give feedback written feedback mm. when you're built when you're blunt than in person personally I, I'd probably find it the other way around because when you write something down you lose all the nuance of how you say it whereas if you're talking to someone face to face you can sort of say yeah, and this is actually a really good piece, but this bit is just a bit lacking here. And what you probably need to do here is, is you know, change that and just bring that bit down here and it will, it will all line up. But if you try and write that, it just sounds like you're saying, no, this is, you know, you need to do this and do this and do this. And it sounds very, sort of like that. And on, you know, we talk on Slack a lot and I feel like that sometimes. I'm just telling someone what to do rather than trying to say, oh yeah, that's good. Maybe we try this, or maybe we think about it like this way. And I think in the classroom environment, you know, maybe teachers give that comfort feedback and add the, the but do this and you can merge them together better than, than written down but that's just just me i think it's where we need emojis right this is why mm. maybe emojis are a key part of written feedback maybe this we did do a feature on that a couple of years ago you can dig through the tez archive and find kate parker wrote a piece about emojis and and emojis do offer a little bit of emotional interpretation in a very staid world of um of written the written digital yeah. format i guess but um, i totally agree with that i think they do have a role to play and they do they do say something sometimes that words wouldn't say crying emoji it's my favorite i think <laughs> Cry, laughing crying not just the crying one i'm yeah the laughing crying the one. laughing i found myself during lockdown i found myself using that emoji a lot more and i think it was because i felt like life's too short to not use the crying laughy face emoji and like some of this stuff isn't even that hilarious but i'm just going to pretend i'm absolutely in hysterics <laughs> about it because we need we all need to feel a bit better so if there was a chart of how often I use that emoji, it would be literally nothing. And then sort of April 2020, it would just, you know, exponential growth. I keep using the rolling eyes one, but I think that means awkward, but I, I don't think it does anymore. You know, the one with the eyes are at the top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I use that a lot, but I, as in I'm exasperated, but I'm not sure that's what it's meant to be. Is that, have I got that right? The the hands one always gets me. Like that's like, that's not clapping. That's so for the benefit of people listening yeah. and answer the video. I'm putting my hands together, but that's not, that's not meant to be clapping. That's meant to be praying. Oh. It looks like high-fiving, doesn't it? Yeah. And I know the one you mean, yeah. John. And yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess people know you to know what emoji you're using and why you're using it. What emoji yeah. would you be? I think, uh, I think I would be the sort of just toothless smile. Just the, just the simple smile. Would, I, like the, I would like to yeah, be. That, I like the one that's upside down. When it's and you yeah. use that when something doesn't make sense, but it's just like it's just the way it is, and you just have the up, upside down oh, one. You, you are definitely an upside down face. Yeah, that, that that's you to a T. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what you'd be, Gronya. Maybe I'd be that laughing face one where the mouth has gone into like two V's. They're laughing really hard, but there's no tears. Oh, uh, maybe I was thinking more the sort of the sort. Of, I, I'm trying to think of one that shows some, someone who's slightly manic like just a bundle of energy but i don't think there is emoji for that is there, is um, there like... 
criticizing Quinn's personality. Lovely. Oh, Christ, it's happened again. Let's move on. So please do um, check out Ian's feature this week. I think it's going to be one that's going to cause a lot of discussion. And I think there's a risk that it could become quite polarized. And I think we should all try and meet in the middle, use our emojis wisely, even some GIFs and have a sensible discussion about it. And, you know, because it is something that's important and it is something that needs to be dealt with in a sensitive way. It's probably also worth mentioning on that feature. He did a lot of research, didn't he, to get mm. teacher data to back up what he was saying. So again, it was a real sort of hard bit of work he's probably done to put that together. So again, as you to your point there, it's, it is a it's something to worth reading and taking board and not just dismiss sort of or take your position on it before you've read it and thought about it. Okay, so let's move to article number two, and Dan is going to talk to us about that. Am indeed. Now this is a, a piece about pens, and um, I had no idea that pens had so much, you know, to think about what kind of pen do you use? When do you use it? How do you use it? What's, what sort of tactileness do you need on the paper? The haptics of it on the paper, I think that might be the right term. Um, and then th this lady from BIC that's interviewed in the piece talks about how they're developing a, a COVID pen. We didn't find out what that means, but it, it's fascinating. And, I, and yeah, I just got me thinking like, again, the humble pen suddenly in the world of teachers in the classroom becomes this sort of this thing of great sort of importance and you've got to really think about what you're doing with it i think that struck me about it was that she said she doesn't design a pen necessarily just to work well i mean she she designs a pen to be to be held to make to make the holder feel something to to have an emotional connection with a pen and then i got to thinking oh that's a bit weird and then i thought well i'm obsessed with my ink rollerball pens and I, I find it really difficult to write in anything but my ink rollerball pens and i didn't know what that said about me and suddenly i thought the lady from Bic might have manipulated my emotions to, 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 to fall in love with a pen. I mean, it's bizarre. I think there's one really important thing we all need to take away from this piece and all teachers would be really keen to hear is that there's not just one pen suitable for all tasks. You need lots and lots of pens so we can buy lots and lots of stationery. And that's really important. Because oh, yeah. teachers do love stationery and, you know, sometimes they hoard the stationery for themselves and they don't share the stationery with, with, with the poor students. And, you know, I'm going to get hate mail for that, but, you know, people are very possessive over their board pens and, and as such. But I thought one of the interesting things was that, you know, there's a pen for note-taking and there's a pen for leisurely writing and it all depends how quick the ink's dry and how, what sort of grip you can have and how heavy the pen is. And you just don't think about this stuff. Well, you don't think about it until someone points it out to you. And then, and then I, like you, I had the same thought. I looked around the, the room I'm in and I was like, I hate that pen. It's rubbish. It doesn't work. Why do I persist? And I went and threw it in the bin. And then the other pens I've got that I do like, I sort of felt more connected to them. And I, I, was, I was like, yeah, you guys are like, you're all right. Because if you're trying to write a shopping list, say, on a scratchy bit of paper, they just work. I haven't got yeah. to scratch it in and then find another pen. It's, like, oh, and it, it's just reliable. And I think that's, you know, I can see you on a busy day, just being able to grasp the right pen for the right job. So that's not to be overlooked, especially in an exam, because <laughs> if you're if you're writing for what is it in an English exam, you know, you'll tell me how long do you have to write for an English exam? Um, so the language papers are like two hours each and then the literature papers, two hours, 45 minutes. So, I mean, we need a light, quick, dry pen there, I'm thinking. Right. I mean, we need, we need to think about the pen we're going to use because that's a long time to be writing. Yeah, maybe it's one hour, 45 minutes. I haven't talked for a long time now. But <laughs> Let down. <laughs> I should have those facts on my fingertips. Um, 
Yes, so you're writing for a really long time, and not just that, the point you made about um, the, the, the ink smudging, if you're left-handed, this is really, really important because, of course, your hand will smudge what you've written. Mm. So um, you definitely have different pens for different occasions. And the, I know that primary school teachers will often bemoan the love of a ballpoint pen in secondary because they've got their students using free-flowing ink, like yes. the fine handwriting. Yeah. And there's nothing worse in the world than lending someone else one of those fine liner type pens. And then they'll write and they'll put the pressure in the wrong place. And then when you take it back, the pen's like not like someone else has worn your shoes. Wow, this is this is real tra- this is do real they, trauma. Do they here. still have those pens in school with the ink cartridges that you have to put in and break and then oh, I've not I remember seen those. those. Yeah. I had those when I was at school, but I've not seen those for a long time. Because they that seems like a bad idea for a school. Little ink pellets of, you know, like yeah. mess and only if you're naughty, Dan, like you. Only if you're gonna <laughs> use <laughs> I was thinking as you were talking, Dan, like what would be the dream pen for a teacher? It would be a biro that you could chew but it never, ever exploded in a kid's mouth. That is something that never happened when I was at school, but happens all the time mm. now. And they, used to have, um, they used to have the barrel pens, didn't they, which, which sort of forced your hand into a tripod grip. And she says very explicitly in the piece, you know, all the research suggests a tripod grip is not the be-all and end-all of, of pen grips. And as someone who has a, still has a palmer grip, like a, like, a child, like a very young child, I'm very pleased to hear that. And I'm pleased that my tiny scribbly writing that results from that palmer grip is, is okay, is acceptable. Acceptable to who? None of us can read it. Oh, well, this isn't the point. You're undermining the point is that we shouldn't be bending our children into these into these these grips that aren't natural. And, and she says the idea of designing pens for the one to five age group in particular is 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 having a, a being able to have an intuitive grip. Which, well, how can we know? I mean, that's like chicken and egg, isn't it? It's like if you never taught a child, but you gave them a pen, would they learn to hold it? naturally eventually themselves or do we shape their pen holding into our own understanding of what a pen how a pen should be held it's, it's like, like it would, it would, be, you couldn't you couldn't leave a child alone it'd be cruel to do it but it'd be interesting if you could and then see what pen grip they developed i think my kids go for the big palmer grip put as much pressure on pro- as possible and just really engrave it into my sofas just just that ink so it really embeds so you have to buy them some paper well, they've got paper, but, you know, the canvas of a sofa is just too tempting to so them. So rewarding. And, you know, thank God someone invented washable ink uh, because that saves us until they find the Sharpie and then then it's just the end of times. I mean, I love Sharpie dearly um, for, for many uses, but for use by a four-year-old twins unaccompanied mm-hmm. in, in a place where there's fabric, it's just a nightmare. You've got to keep it under lock and key, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, so have a look. That's by Carly Page. Uh, she is an excellent journalist and she has done a great job talking to some very interesting people for that feature. So article three, Groinia. So I've picked something that just leapt out at me when I was looking through the mag. Uh, it's something that you do, I do, my daughters do it. If you're reading with a young child, you merrily point to every word on the page as you read it aloud. So Irina Barker has investigated whether there is actually any evidence that this helps and what teachers can do in the classroom to use this technique effectively. So I picked this piece because this is a daily battle in our house about who gets to point at the word when we're reading. <laughs> really? 
<laughs> I've got three daughters, um, seven, five and three. Seven-year-old, she's fine now, she can read on her own. But the five-year-old and I daily have this sort of battle of the pointing finger where I think I should point as she reads because I don't think she does it properly. And she wants to point, but then when she points, she loses, like she stops pointing about halfway through and then she starts missing words and a row ensues. So I was really interested to read this and it was great because I heard that everything I've been doing is probably wrong and I should stop. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's just interesting. It's, um, it's something that talks about uh, stuff in key stage one, early years, and also about secondary schools and lots of teachers who use a ruler or encourage kids to hold a piece of paper and to slowly, re slowly reveal the pages they're going down. Irene covers all sorts of different points in the piece and it's well worth a read and sharing in your different departments, not just English, but whole school. Literacy is a whole school thing and primary teachers should definitely have a read of it. It is sort of intuitive, isn't it, that if a child is reading, we, f we feel a need to point at the word. And that must be quite annoying. Like, it must be quite annoying because it's, it's sort of patronising. And she, in the piece, she sort of hints at that and says, you know, some kids just aren't going to need that, you know, need that instruction. And again, it's a bit like Ian's piece. We're in a, we're in a sensitive place, aren't we, in, in how much, you know, how much we scaffold the process. Like, how much does it help? Mm -hmm. The evidence suggests, you know, it, it's mixed but there's not a lot of evidence around and then how what then what would the negatives be potential negatives and I think maybe a lack of belief that they can follow text is is one of those possible negatives and it's this idea that you know if you don't point then they'll look at the picture it's like I should probably just chill out a bit and let her look at the picture first I you know <laughs> if it's if it's if you're five minutes too late for bed and and they start looking at the pictures I'm a horrible one for going come, come on Elliot just, just, just focus on the just focus on the words and I'm pointing at them as if he doesn't know where they are when he fully knows where they are. He's just trying to see the beautiful illustration. And it's, uh, but it's, it's something as adults, you know, if I'm reading something really complicated, I find myself pointing and just, just to, I don't know whether it's like any evidence base for that at all, but it seems to focus me. It, you know, it says, it says to my brain, stop looking at Twitter, follow where that, digit is pointing i mean am i alone dan have you had this experience well i don't do that but i i, I read things out loud if i really want to make sure something is correct i will read it out loud and only oh, then right. do you realize that that doesn't make sense like a headline or something or you know particularly when you've edited it over and over again and you sort of you think now it's, it's going to make sense and it doesn't because you have you've realized you've put an s on the end or you know you've used the you have put the apostrophe in or whatever it might be but yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting piece. I mean, I, it made me think like it'd be hard. It must be hard. I mean, not a situation I'm in regularly, but it must be hard, for example, for you two, if you're to not want to do that, because that would feel like you're guiding them. And that's what you want to do. Right. That must be the, you know, the, the parental instinct is I want or, or teacher instinct is I want to help and I can help you by I can't read it for you, but I can sort of guide your reading. And it's obviously hard to stop yourself doing that. There's a weird study in the piece, wasn't there, about the the fake reading where the kids learn a word and then point at it and recite the word as if they were reading it as if they're practicing the sort of the, the mechanization of that reading is very bizarre um but appears to be very effective and i think one of the points in the piece is that you know these these reading apps that are a bit like karaoke where you know it sort of it has a digital finger coming across the, the words be them you know highlighting them in a different color or literally having a ball bouncing on top 
she says well you know yeah it might help in the same way but actually you're losing the tactile you're using the 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 sort of um sensual engagement with it and i think that was an interesting point is okay we know that involving more senses in learning makes a difference so actually is the pointing less about following the text and more about memory there's a big question for you uh Gronje, go on answer so I'm thinking now about my smallest, who's only three, and she's she's starting to learn how to read. And she will, when she's pretending, she'll just point and be like, ah, oh, 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 and like just make up random <laughs> sentences. Um, Which is a failure of yours as a parent, obviously. Obviously, yeah. And um, it, it's it's something that I think she's just powered, like she's mimicking, isn't she? She's seen us read like that, so she's yeah. reading like that. But the the connection between you and the book and by actually touching it feeling some kind of like I don't know it's is that concentration isn't it like I when I proofread my work I would go and touch each word and I know there's certain schools where they were at one point asking kids to tick each word to show that they'd um thought about the spelling of each one I think that practice got dropped a while ago but that was discussed um online a few years ago and whether or not that was a worthwhile thing. I don't think that's a million miles away from it, is it? This idea of like, yep, yeah, that one, that one, that one. But are we thinking of things too much in isolation then? Because I've proofread my own work like that, like reading each word and touching it and there's still mistakes in it. And you think so, about the, you know, one of the key things about reading is enjoyment. And if mm. we're going to make it a mechanistic process rather than an emotive one, by, you know, making sure you get all the words and following it properly and not looking at the pictures, I guess we're taking away from the fact that this should be about a child and a text even at the very early stages there's a brilliant interview we did with Jane Oakhill at University of Sussex where she said you know kids shouldn't be just this shouldn't be just about reading words it should be about engaging with the text right from the start this is about comprehension this is about what do we understand from this book and maybe the pointing is taking it in more of a mechanistic place well the, the other bit in the feature is it talks about the idea that obviously like you know in the western curriculum we're teaching them also the order in which you're reading the page mm. because i think in other countries they in other cultures they read it different or like the other way and the pointing is almost telling just remember you go left to right which we take so for granted we don't even think is part of the, the process maybe but perhaps actually that is a sort of just in this you know in this school in this country whatever you start on the left and you go to the right and you go from top to the bottom and that's that's part of it too it's just that sort of cultural teaching almost yeah i think there's you know, when we when we conceived of the feature, it was the sort of oh, this we I've noticed we do this. I wonder why. And when it came in from Marina, it's this sort of like you suddenly like wow. I mean, there's loads more to this than I ever thought there would be, and so many different elements. And that's the beauty of looking into reading is because there's so many variables, so many factors involved that actually you isolate one and suddenly think, okay, well, this is a lot more in more detail. This is a lot more impact than I thought it might have had um so yeah definitely have a look at that and um and uh see see what you think and let us know uh before we go today we need to finish a challenge that was set last week and that challenge was between dan and groinia and is about spotting a liar and i mean i don't want to bring it up dan but she 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 spotted it straight away didn't she yeah i mean to be fair there's a 33 percent chance of I've gotten it right and I think that's what happened Let, let's not downplay it I mean she, she spotted it fair fair deal and, and then the challenge was laid for a, a reciprocal arrangement so I believe you are going to be trying to spot the lie this week I am yeah so Gronya's got two lies and one truth that she's going to read out and then 
we get I guess we get a little bit of questioning but not too much how many questions did you get last week I can't even remember like did you get two well, it was loads on, on one one on the other and then none for the last one so it was well it was quite we, we better keep it the same and go free for all then okay, okay. Let's, let's go free for all okay so number one I've never drunk a pint of beer number two when I was younger, I had lessons in violin, piano, recorder and singing, despite having no musical ability at all. And finally, in my first ever lesson as a trainee teacher, I inadvertently made a child cry. Wow. Well, I mean, you're setting us up there, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, on past experience, we're going free straight away, but this is not my battle. So I'll hand over to you, Dan. But OK, so pint of beer. Why have you never drunk a pint of beer once ever? I just don't like the taste of it. So I never drunk a whole pint. So what, what would you drink instead? What, instead of beer? Yeah, I mean, what's your drink of choice? Um, I always drink Prosecco if I'm in the pub or white wine. Always. You go in pub straight away, bottle of Prosecco, barman, barwoman. Bottle? Well, Dan's making assumptions <laughs> there again. <laughs> yeah, Prosecco is my favourite favorite drink. Okay, so no, you never drank a pint of beer? Never. Okay. And the next one was, you've had loads of musical lessons, but you have no musical talent. So how old did this, when did this eventually stop? Uh, when I went to university, I stopped having piano lessons. So you had piano lessons all, the, all that time and you still can't play the piano? I can play bits badly, but I've got no rhythm and I'm pretty useless. That, I was asking that's true. Your poor parents paying for that. <laughs> yeah, so let me, let's just clarify, you had piano lessons from what, from how, for how many years? Um, from when I was seven until I was 17, so 10 years. And you can't even play chopsticks or happy birthday or anything? I, I can't play anything by ear because everything sounds the same to me. Um, <laughs> I, can play, <laughs> I can play a few pieces, like I did exams in it, but I'm, I'm really, really bad. They told me not to join the choir when I was at school because my, my singing is so bad and yeah, so I had lots of music music lessons. I had um, violin lessons, saxophone lessons, but I'm... Yeah, I'm okay. I mean, I mean, all of these could be true, couldn't they? No, really? I, I'm sceptical about that one. Um, and um, no one can play piano for 10 years and not be able to play. And play by ear. You didn't play by ear. You just you just play. Um... No, no, like, <laughs> you know, you said, like, play Happy Birthday. If someone gave me the music for Happy Birthday... No, but I can't, you, must, you must have learned a piece that you, can, you were able to remember the notes of and just play it. And you can't even name me one piece that you learn and play and can play. I can't name the pieces, but there's pieces that I can play, but I play them really badly. And people would probably say to me, please, God, stop. You know, no, Dan, the, the I'm, I'm, one. That, that, that one, I'm ruling that that's a lie because I don't think anyone can play the piano and have that many lessons and not be reasonably competent at, in one way or another. So the last one was um, you made a kid cry in your first ever lesson. Well, what did you do to make him cry? Okay, so it's a drama game. I was teaching a drama lesson and it's called Zip, Zap, Bop. And you have to like fling your arms out. And you go zip, 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 zip round. And then you go zap, 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 zap round. And we taught, I taught them the rules, like, let's start playing. And I was like, Katie, you start. And Katie just went, Whoa! and started crying. And I felt dreadful. Mm -hmm. And it's because Katie didn't like playing drama games and I shouldn't have asked her to start us off. And, and this was secondary school? Yeah, secondary school, year seven drama. Okay, and what did you do in response? 
um, my mentor was in the lesson with us, like watching, and she stepped in and she took Katie off and then we carried on, but I started the game and yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I did. So you, ex- you excluded her from the game. You didn't adapt the yeah. game to her <laughs> needs. You excluded her. I mean, the picture you paint of you teaching, I'm glad you're a journalist now. <laughs> okay. Um, just one more thing. What's your favorite type of beer? <laughs> my favorite type of beer yeah i don't like any beer so i don't i just can't even tell the difference between beers yeah, that was my colombo you know trying to catch you out <laughs> guard moment okay that was quite difficult i've been to know what john maybe john you should guess as well after me but okay. this is what i think you the middle one sounded very convoluted and you definitely look your eyes went up and left quite a lot when you answered that one which i believe is one of these sort of i don't know if it's true or not but you hear that's what people do when they lie I think that the other one is just a, a trap to draw us in because you want us to think you made a kid cry and you probably did make a child cry many times, but it probably wasn't in that lesson <laughs> or your first lesson and you've just slightly embellished the truth. So I think it's the pint of beer one because I just think there's, a, there's an element of truth that, yeah, you, you're like this, you have this sort of, oh, Prosecco, you know, uh, oh, blah, blah, no. rather than, oh, I have a pint of beer, mate. So I think the answer is the truth is the beer one. I think he's right because I don't think you'd ever you'd ever do a drama game in a lesson. I just don't think that's you. And and I agree, if you've spent 10 years learning piano and can't play a thing, I mean, that is horrendous. So yeah, I'm with Dan on this. Embarrassingly, um, it is true that I don't drink beer, but of my music story, the piano bit is true, but I just didn't have violin and saxophone lessons. Oh, I dear. My so, we Wait, get it. so was I right? You were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> And we can but, be disappointed in Groyner for for, for, for sort of yeah. going against all of the research <laughs> of Anders Ericsson, which says deliberate practice over an extended period of time will create expertise. And, and obviously it doesn't. So you've disproved that. <laughs> I mean, that is appalling. Um, so even this game had proper educational insights. And I mean, I'm a professional. I linked it back. I mean, very that's good. what we do. Um, so that, that's all we've got time for this week. But I just want to say that next week we have a really good feature and it's written by Gronia. um it's looking at a very important issue do you want to do you want to trail it Gronia? and like i don't know we've got what 20 seconds i mean what 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 is it about and why should we read it so the feature i've written is all about teachers in the classroom who don't have children and the the difficult situation that they find themselves in when people make presumptions about them and their choices and what their lives are like because they're women in the classroom who don't have children themselves. It's it's an incredibly emotional read, actually, and it's a really important topic and one that hopefully will generate a lot of discussion and productive outcomes. I hope that we all get that. So um, make sure you have a look at that next week and we'll be back with a debrief. And I imagine you'll be talking about that feature, Gornia, next week. Yes, I will be. Thank you very much. See you next week. Bye. Bye.